Hello and welcome to Definitions, the podcast where we crack the lid of the coffin on death, dying and all the morbid morsels in between. Before we go any further, halt and take heed. These are your words of warning. I will be discussing topics of a deathly nature that may be upsetting to some, and this week also a brief mention of incest and sexual assault. If you're not in the right headspace to get down and dirty with the maggots today, then that's fine. I totally get it. Sometimes you'd rather dig into cake and a good romance novel than a freshly dug grave. Now's the time to save yourself. If you're still here, I'll assume you've got your shovels at the ready, and believe me, you'll need them, because today I'm asking the question, what is the most photographed mausoleum in the world? What's the most romantic thing you've ever done? Scattered rose petals on a bed? Surprised your loved one with tickets to see a favourite musician? If your version of romance is remembering to put the toilet seat down, or not running a wash while your partner's in the shower, I'm about to put you to shame. To be honest, even if you're the kind of person who keeps running tabs on the things your other half mentions throughout the years, so come their birthday they're not going to be faking a smile and thinking of somewhere to hide their present, you're still going to come up short. Some of us love a grand gesture. A kiss up on the big screen at a sports game, an expensive gift, a very public proposal at your favourite spot. Personally, this sounds like my idea of hell, which is why I proposed to my beloved when we were trapped together and she could not escape me during lockdown. Twice. But that's another story. But what grander gesture could there be than the creation of a monument, not just in your honour, but to make sure that the world will never, ever forget you. 400 years ago, there were no phones, no photographs, no way other than portraits or literature to remember the dead. Unless you were rich enough. If you had money in the medieval period, what better way to spend it than on glorious tombs for you and your loved ones? There are final resting places like this all over the world. From the ancient pyramids to Victorian mausoleums, throughout history people have sought to indicate their status through the size and complexity of their graves, but none have ever done it with such style and exquisite skill as India's Taj Mahal. There are fewer places more photographed in the entire world than the highly polished marble and meticulously landscaped lawns of the Taj Mahal. Situated on the right-hand side, or south bank, of the Yamuna River, it took skilled artisans from all over the world over two decades to complete. And when it was done, it resembled more a tiny palace or temple than any mausoleum. But I promise you a romantic gesture and a love story. Well, in order to understand how we got here so many hundreds of years later, we first need to go back to where it all started. Arjumand Banu Begum was born in 1593 in Agra, situated in the state of Uttar Pradesh and at the time the seat of power in India. Her father was Abdul Hassan Asaf, who would become the Grand Vizier to Shah Jahan, the future fifth Mughal Emperor. Although Arjuman's family were related to the ruling class of Persia, 
they themselves were impoverished, supposedly having arrived at court with their riches reduced to the two donkeys they had in tow. Argemund, as most future empresses seem to do, grew up to be beautiful and smart. She composed poetry and spoke multiple languages, and as a teenager drew the eyes of the court to her, including those of the Mughal emperor, Jahangir. Don't worry though, this story isn't about to take a disturbing turn, yet. Emperor Jahangir did not thankfully have his own sight set on the girl, but instead thought her a suitable match for his son, Prince Karam, and the two were betrothed to be wed. Despite this betrothal and seeming love match, Arjamund was not, in fact, Prince Karam's first wife. She was his third. Romantic, right? Though there is no doubt that she would go on to become the love of his life. After five long years of engagement, their wedding day was carefully decided upon by the court astrologers in order to ensure the young couple's marriage would be a happy one. Despite having married two other women in the meantime, it's said that Prince Karam merely did his duty, sired a child with each of them, and then settled down with his precious argument. The prince very quickly became inseparable from his third wife. For a time, due to bad blood and familial disagreements between Prince Karam and his father, the Emperor Jahangir, Arjamand and the prince were forced to leave court. They returned after the emperor's death, and after defeating his half-brother, and also, weirdly, Arjamand's cousin, whose mother was the Persian empress Nurjahan, who was married to and bore the children for the prince's father, Prince Karum ascended to the peacock throne and was crowned the emperor, Shah Jahan. It was then that he bequeathed the name Mumtaz Mahal, meaning jewel or exalted one of the palace to his third wife. I'll be referring to the couple by these names for the rest of the episode, just to make things easier. Like many besotted couples, Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal went everywhere together. Most notably, she accompanied him on military campaigns, even while heavily pregnant. And after 19 years together, it was during one of these campaigns, whilst heavily pregnant with their 14th child, that the unthinkable happened. In the 19 years that they had been together, the couple had had to live through the deaths of seven of their children who had passed away either during childbirth or after. Pregnancy complications are terrifying enough, even now, with how far medical science has come. I can't begin to imagine the dangers of childbirth nearly half a century ago, especially whilst camping close to a battlefield. But this was, at the time, one of the reasons to have many wives. It wasn't only infants who had a high mortality rate. If you were a Mughal prince and you lost one life to labour and were left without any male heirs, you could very quickly um, resolve that issue with one of your other spouses. But Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal weren't your ordinary polygamous medieval royal couple. They were in love. Mumtaz Mahal had survived 13 previous births. Yes, it came with risks, but maybe after a while you start to think the worst will never happen to you. That you're lucky. 
but sometimes experience your own or others isn't enough. And it was in 1631, after an excruciating 30 hour labor, that that luck ran out. Both Mumtaz Mahal and the baby girl she was carrying succumbed to the dangers of childbirth. And it's said that Shah Jahan's hair turned white overnight from grief. At the time of her death, Mumtaz Mahal was only 38. She was buried within the walls of a pleasure garden at Burhanpur, but she wouldn't stay there for long. Later in the year, Mumtaz Mahal would be disinterred and brought to Agra to await her husband's future plans. For an entire year, Shah Jahan shut himself away from the world and mourned the loss of his wife. I can only imagine this as a kind of quarantine, a self-quarantine, I suppose. Something which more of us than we ever thought would have experienced in the last few years. But the mind doesn't just stop when we close ourselves off. During lockdown, people became obsessed with new hobbies, baking banana bread and raising sourdough children or something. My point is, spending massive amounts of time to ourselves doesn't always have the most healthy outcomes, especially where grief is concerned, and doubly when you are head of one of the richest empires on earth. To say that Shah Jahan's grief over his wife's death became an obsession, I think, is a fair point to make. With days and weeks and months on end to think only of her loss, the empty space beside him where she should have been, it's easy to see how obsession could grow. She was his wife, his empress, his jewel of the palace. Mumtaz Mahal was gone, but her husband would do everything in his power to see that she was not forgotten. Upon his return to court life, Shah Jahan put his plan into motion. He would build a mausoleum from the most exquisite materials, using only the best artisans, like the world had never seen before. He would bring his love home, right next door to his palace, in fact. He would create for her the wonder of the ancient and modern world, the Taj Mahal. I know it's not very romantic to say, but this is not a regular response to death. It kind of ruins the story, I know, to take a step back for a moment and think about the sheer level of obsession that must have driven him to undertake this task. Unfortunately, this wasn't the only way his inability to let go of his dead wife affected him. Remember earlier when I said the story wasn't about to take a disturbing turn yet? Well, this is it. There are historians who believe that Shah Jahan, in his grief, initiated a sexual relationship with his own daughter, Jahanara, because she looked just like her mother. Yeah. Building a stunning marble mausoleum with dazzling jeweled inlay? Absolutely. Incest? Not so much. Really, all I can say is that I hope these historians are wrong. Although, when have powerful men ever been known to abuse their power in order to coerce people into unwanted sexual situations? Right? But anyway, back to the Taj. 
Rising from the banks of the river in sweeping domes and arches, this feat of architectural wonder would take the blood, sweat and tears of over 20,000 workers 22 years to complete. They couldn't have known it at the time, but when they lay down their tools and squinted, raising their hands to shield their eyes against the magnificent shine reflecting the sun and radiating from the expertly carved white marble, they were looking at what is now considered to be the greatest artistic achievement in Indo-Islamic history. More than two decades after her death, Mumtaz Mahal was finally laid to rest in a crypt underneath the main body of the mausoleum. As for Shah Jahan, he would get to spend the rest of his life waking from his palace bedroom and looking out of his window to say good morning to his wife's tomb. Despite the completion of his grand project, there was more trouble to come for Shah Jahan. Just a decade after work on the Taj Mahal was completed, Shah Jahan was deposed by his son, Aurangzeb, but he would be allowed to stay under house arrest at the Red Fort next to the Taj Mahal until his death in 1666. There are many rumours and myths that have sprung up around the Taj Mahal in the 400 years since its completion. The most sinister of which involves the silencing of the men who worked on it. It said that in order for no one else to be able to create such a spectacular building as this, Shah Jahan ordered the hands of all of the craftsmen to be severed at the wrist, that they may never replicate the work. In some versions of the story, he had them killed and even buried on the grounds. As it stands, there are only two people buried at the Taj Mahal, Mumtaz Mahal and Shah Jahan. I think it would have irked this perfectionist emperor to no end to know that pretty much the only asymmetrical thing about the Taj Mahal is his own coffin. The mausoleum was originally only built for one, but upon his death, without pomp or circumstance, Shah Jahan's body was taken down the river by two men and interred alongside his now long-dead wife. Of course, if you believe another story, the Taj Mahal was only ever meant to be one of two. Supposedly, the emperor had designs for an even larger mausoleum on the opposite side of the Yamuna River, this one created entirely from black marble, a shadowy twin to the Taj's light grandeur. It's possible that these two immense tombs were meant to be joined by a bridge across the river. And maybe it's just my brain, but it gets me thinking. Would the black and white marble have just met in the middle? Or would they have gone for a gradient type thing? Either way, we'll never know, as the, the legendary Black Taj is just that, a legend. Today, the Taj Mahal is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and place of holiday pilgrimage for tourists from all over the world and across India itself. I've actually been there myself, 10 years ago. And my experience was strange, to say the least. Whilst taking my own photographs, a small group of Indian tourists approached where I was standing to take their own photos, and I made to move out the way. But that wasn't what they wanted. What they wanted was photos of the Taj Mahal 
with me. As a very awkward, very naive 15-year-old white tourist, it was very hard to say no. And it wasn't just one family. So yeah, somewhere out there, I'm in someone else's holiday photos. It's weird to think about. But weirder is the fact that behind me was one of the most jaw-dropping, breathtaking buildings in the whole world. And it's not a home, not a palace. It's not a place of worship or community. No, it's an homage to the life of a woman who, in her death, inspired the kind of art that is described as a poem in marble and extols the depths of the kind of all-encompassing romance that we are told to yearn for. It's just a shame that she never got to see it. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed our brief dive into the origins of one of the most photographed mausoleums in the world. If you have any thoughts to share about the podcast or your own impending mortality, drop them in the comments or over on TikTok at Definitions, where I also chronicle and recommend all of my favorite morbid books. Any reviews or ratings will go a long way in helping to get this podcast out there and I greatly appreciate the support. Doesn't have to be five stars. The Definitions podcast is researched, written and read by me, Jasper Chanter, with music provided by Zapsplat. Anyway, chop chop, breaks over, pick that shovel up, that grave's not gonna dig itself. Bye bye for now, listeners, and I'll catch you on the other side.